coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap. iOS-targeted malware is in the wild. The simple side-channel bypass to electronic safes and how digital forensics prove that a journalist may have been framed. Then it's a great batch of your questions, a rock and roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 281 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on August 25th, 2016. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, Ting, DigitalOcean, and iX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this year's show goes on. Our live stream and all of the downloads for the Jupiter Broadcasting Network powered by Scale Engine. Go check that out over at scaleengine.com. I think you'll be pretty impressed. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher. It's Mr. Alan Jude. Hello, Alan. Hello, Chris, everybody. Welcome back. How was BSD Cam, sir? It was quite good. On the river, no less. Yes, uh, we had, uh, you know, got to do quite a bit of sightseeing and so on and walking around. That's uh, nice. On the last night, uh, we kind of broke off from the group that was going out for dinner and went somewhere else and then just walked up and down the river for <laughs> like two right. hours. Yeah. Uh, a couple of us were catching Pokemon. Not me, but <laughs> Brian Drew. He was like, all of a sudden, it's like, where'd Brian go? And you just see his head sticking out of a <laughs> shrub as he's... It's like, oh, there's a there's a gym over here or something. I'm oh like, yeah, what sure. Are you, doing? you gotta go there. That's worth that's worth it. Yeah. I don't know. Oh, I'm boy. just slightly too old or something. Yeah. I don't know. Like Brian's the same ish age as me. Yeah. Yeah. I thought he was older than me. Gotta watch know. out. Gotta I watch somehow out. missed the Pokemon craze and yeah. never got into it. So did I. But if you even even still you can you can end up getting the fever. So uh we're back and uh, we are here with a big, big show. At least on at least I was looking yeah, at the show. There's so much stuff that I had to bump certain things and I I, you know, one of the big stories I kind of pushed to next week just because I didn't want all three stories to be the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> just got to spread it out the love gotta, a little bit. Got to lighten it up a little bit. And yes, yeah. hopefully I'll have more information about some of these. Okay. So I know a bunch of you are expecting coverage of a certain thing and you'll have to wait till next week. But don't worry. It's already in the works. But in the meantime, do you want to get started? Uh, yes. We have this new report. It came out, I think, today. It's been in the works for a while, though. There's been code being written. It's a sophisticated, persistent attack against iOS targets, but like specific high-value targets? Tell me yeah, about so it. So this is going after specific people via their iOS device. Okay. So this is a persistent enterprise-class spyware. Uh, sorry. Persistent enterprise-class spyware is an underestimated problem on mobile devices. People don't realize how easy it is to get malware on your phone and have terrible things happen. Also, I would point out, too, I, I don't know what they mean by enterprise, but I know that if you have an iPhone, there's additional privileges you can have remotely controlling it that a traditional iPhone doesn't have yeah. in the enterprise scenario. Yeah, anyway. But, however, targeted attack scenarios against specific high-value mobile users are a real threat. So people don't take malware on phones seriously enough, but this particular case where it's targeting specific people rather than just trying to get malware on as many phones as you can, that's a, a serious problem right now. That makes sense. So Citizen Lab, which is uh, a project out of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto, okay, uh, and a company called Lookout.com, uh, have uncovered an active threat be, uh, using three critical iOS zero-day vulnerabilities that, when exploited, form a chain, uh, an attack chain that subverts even Apple's strongest uh, security environment. Hmm, now, I'm pretty familiar with Lookout. They've been a security player on mobile for a while, and then they kind of transitioned from apps to security research. 
So it sounds like they've yeah. teamed so, up with Citizens Lab, huh? Okay. Yeah, in this particular. Uh, so Citizen Lab reached out and had Lookout help them with the research because they had kind of subject matter experts on this. Um, whereas Citizen Lab is more focused on the implications of it, right? Because it's the mm-hmm. School of Global Affairs. It's all about uh, human rights and, and like intergovernmental affairs and so on. Uh, anyway, so yeah, uh, Lookout. Uh, They've named this uh, exploit Trident because it's using three uh, iOS zero days. So a Trident is uh, very clever. A little uh, sort the, the <laughs> Trident that Steve has here. You have a prop right for us. Three. Yeah, I, I was also thinking of Ariel's father from The Little Mermaid. Yes, episode, you know. uh, yes. Basically, any uh, what's Trident? What's the name of the Greek god of the sea? Um, it- Trident's also a fish brand. Now that I think about it. Right. Well, it anyway. It's the name of the staff with the pointy things. Yeah, on the staff. Anyway. The staff. We know what you mean. Those ones. Yeah. Ah. So uh, those two organizations have worked directly with Apple's security team, and uh, which was very responsive and immediately fixed all three Trident iOS vulnerabilities as part of uh, iOS nine point three point five. Neptune. Yes, Neptune is the god, or Poseidon, or both of them. I don't know. Either way, Neptune and Poseidon are the two I was thinking of. Anyway, uh, Trident is used in a spyware product called Pegasus, which is also <laughs> okay. something. Um, it's a flying horse. And it's the god. No, that's Prometheus. Anyway, uh, <laughs> totally sidetracked. Strange turn this has taken. According uh, to an investigation by Citizens Lab, um, this Trident uh, spyware is part of the product called Pegasus, which is developed by an organization called NSO Group. NSO Group is an Israeli-based organization uh, that was recently acquired by uh, a U.S. company called Francisco Partners Management, um, which separately brings me back to that uh, idea um, Paul Hennekamp had at Fosdem a couple years ago. If you were the NSA and you wanted to deal with this stuff but on the cheap, what you would do is start these shell companies and then buy these other companies and... Yeah, especially when there's such a bonanza going on that it's not unusual for these kinds of things to be moving around and getting bought up. And yeah, anyway, so according to news reports, uh, this uh, NSO group specializes in cyber warfare. Uh, Pegasus is highly advanced in its use of zero days, obfuscation, encryption, and kernel level exploitation. Uh, so, Citizen Lab and Lookout have created two reports that discuss the use of this targeted attack against. Uh, political dissidents and provides a detailed analysis of the malware or the malicious code itself. In its report, Citizen Lab details how attackers targeted a human rights defender with mobile spyware, uh, providing evidence that governments digitally harass perceived enemies, including activists, journalists, and human rights workers. Uh, in this report, Lookout provides its in-depth technical look at the targeted espionage attack uh, that is actively being used against various iOS users throughout the world. So there's two reports. The Citizen Lab one focuses on uh, one particular case where this was used and who it was used against and how it was used. Okay. And the Lookout report focuses on how the malware actually works internally. So there's basically a political report and a technical report. Uh, So the target of the attack that Citizen Lab uh, uses as their case study was uh, Ahmed Mansour, who's an internationally recognized human rights defender. Uh, on August 10th and 11th, I think this was of 2015 or 2014, uh, he received text messages promising secrets, in quotes, uh, about detainees who were being tortured in uh, United Arab Emirates jails uh, if he clicked on the link included in the message. Instead of clicking, because he's familiar with 
phishing and malware, uh, Mansoor sent the messages to the Citizen Lab researchers. Recognizing the links as belonging to exploit infrastructure connected to the NSO group, Citizen Lab collaborated with Lookout uh, to determine uh, that the links led to a chain of zero-day exploits that would uh, would have jailbroken his phone and installed the sophisticated malware. This is actually the third time that uh, Mansoor has been the target of these lawful <laughs> malware. Jeez. Uh, previously, Citizen Lab research found that in 2011, he was targeted using FinFisher. Do you remember FinFisher? We talked about that years no ago. No affiliation, Alan. No affiliation. Right. <laughs> um, and then in 2012, uh, they used hacking team spyware against him. Oh, really? Stuff we have Interesting stuff we've been covering on this show. So basically, every time one of these companies comes up with this kind of malware and offers to sell it, governments buy it and use it against people yep. they don't like. Yeah. <laughs> Would have thought. Um, <laughs> the use of such expensive tools against Mansoor shows the lengths that governments are willing to go to target activists. Uh, Citizen Lab also found evidence that state-sponsored actors are using NSO's exploits uh, in their infrastructure against uh, Mexican journalists who reported on corruption by uh, Mexico's head of state and an unknown target or targets in Kenya. The NSO group uh, used fake domains impersonating sites like the International uh, Committee for the Red Cross and uh, the UK government's visa application processing website. Probably all sites that should have been using SSL. Yeah. Oh, well, I think they were, but they probably used domains that were just slightly different. And, and so, oh, yeah, that could be. Yeah. Um, and a wide range of news organizations and other major technology companies. Uh, this nods towards the targeted nature of this software. They uh, particularly pick sites that they expect the target actually to try to visit and then, you know, jump on them that way. Uh, Pegasus is the most sophisticated attack uh, we've seen in any endpoint because it takes advantage of how integrated mobile devices are in our lives and the combination of features available on mobile, including being always connected because Wi-Fi, 3G, 4G, etc., having voice communications, a camera, email, messaging, GPS, passwords, contact lists, and so on. Uh, in particular, the malware is modular and allows for customizations and it allows the use of uh, strong encryption to evade detection. Uh, so these guys have made many modules, and they like to charge you extra for each one. Uh, but you can also customize it based on uh, who you're targeting and where and decide if you want the module that will steal all their Facebook stuff or all their Gmail stuff or if they're going to use mail.ru instead of Gmail. Hmm. And so you want this module to, to steal all their emails and so on. Um, the chat room asked if this was a watering hole attack. No, this one is specifically targeted against an individual person already and then just tricking them into going to a site that's a slight variation yeah. of the other or yeah, intercept. When, when, you said, when you said that it kind of depends on them targeting a website that they were, were likely to already visit, what went off in my head is, geez, that's creepy because and that means that they were watching these people, studying their online behavior and patterns and then developing an attack based on that, which mm-hmm. implies a period of reconnaissance where they're just sitting there watching the individual. Yes. Preparing uh, for an attack, which is creepy. <laughs> yes. The, the, you know, that's what government spy agencies do. Just usually they're yeah. doing it against, you know, the enemy, not <laughs> a citizen who's just particularly annoying to their government. Yeah. But, you know, depending on the government, there's no differentiation between, uh, you know, watching what some foreign country is doing to make sure they don't attack you versus, you know, watching what some pesky reporter is doing. Mm-hmm. Um, the attack sequence boiled down is your classic uh, spear phishing scheme. 
uh, send text message that gets them to open the web browser, which loads the page, which exploits the vulnerability in the browser or the phone, uh, which installs persistent software to gather information. Uh, this, however, happens invisibly and silently, such that the victim doesn't know that they're being compromised. Um, especially with other uh, vulnerabilities we've seen on phones where you can you know, send a specially crafted text message and it will open up the browser automatically or something. Take or, advantage of something like, uh, what was it? Uh, was it Spearfish where if you just viewed a multimedia message on an Android device, you could... Yep, there was something like that where, yeah, if, if you just got sent a multimedia device, uh, message, didn't even look at it, it tried to load it into the player, which would exploit the player and, and break out and, and take over the whole phone, yeah. Um, so, uh, we believe that this soft, uh, spyware has been in the wild for a significant amount of time hmm. based on some of the indicators within the code like a kernel mapping table that has values all the way back to iOS 7, uh, which is, you know, rather old at this point. Uh, it's also being used to attack high-value targets for multiple purposes, including uh, high-level corporate espionage on iOS, Android, and BlackBerry. So this particular uh, malware that they were talking about is for iOS, but the same company has made malware for Android and BlackBerry as well. Yeah. Uh, stage fright. Correction. Thanks. To well, stage fright was one of them. Right. Um, that was the one I was referring to. Yes, that was the Android one, and then there was this different. There was like three iOS ones where you could send weird text messages and yeah. break and text now, messaging on their phone entirely. We've learned today, which we'll get to, that there's kernel level exploits in iOS up to nine point five three, mm-hmm. which are who knows how you exploit or those before nine five three. Nine five three is the fix. Or right. sorry, nine three five is the fix. Okay. Yeah. Nine three five. Yeah, otherwise a bunch of people are going to be looking for 953. Oh, no. Yeah, yet. yeah I'm, I'm not, sorry, I, I'm, I'm currently on an Android device. I'm not totally yes. familiar with it. Uh, I'm waiting for the little pop-up on mine when I get NuGet. I, I got it by, because I enrolled. By the, so basically the pro tip is if you enroll in the, ba- the beta program now, yes. you'll get NuGet immediately, the final oh. version. Well, However, I don't. I'll, I'll I would not actually necessarily encourage updating immediately. I'm totally gonna wait. Yeah, because there's there's some notification changes that if the, your if your apps don't update, you don't. It kind of doesn't. I'll write the whole. Now that change sounded really interesting to me. Sorry, we're totally off topic. It's now. Okay. Um, we'll go back. When I get a notification from Twitter and yeah. I click it, it opens Twitter, but not to the thing I clicked on. Sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So the nice thing is the nice. And it's supposed to fix that, but yes. it won't fix it until the Twitter yes. app is updated. And on, for some things, you'll now be able to reply right in line in the notification, uh, yes. which is kind of nice. And not have to leave that screen, which is very useful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, uh, things like Telegram and others. It doesn't quite work the way it used to under Marshmallow, which is it's not ideal. So there's still apps that's need to be updated exactly. a little bit, but that'll come. Yeah. So anyway, speak. That's the way you know. You know the reason it's kind of funny you bring that up is because there are certain kernel exploits that we talked about, like the uh, the man in the middle attack that uses the new RFC that the Linux kernel implemented that Windows and Mac hasn't implemented yet. There's a lot of Android devices affected by that particular vulnerability. Uh, there's a lot of these things that we covered that if they apply to a Linux system, they apply to Android. And unless you're kind of on a Nexus device, I don't really understand how you're not getting – you're vulnerable. Like how does that not bother you? Anyways, Soapbox ended. We should probably go back to the main story because this is particularly about iOS. But I guess the point should be made. It pretty much would apply to any popular mobile platform. Yep. Okay. So anyways – that's is that that's kind of it, isn't it? That is sort of the yes, end of the report. Sorry, that, that yeah. is the end. Uh, I have links here to the PDF, uh, the report from Citizen Lab, uh, the technical yeah. report. I showed some of that, and then there's uh, additional coverage from, uh, as you would guess, Ars right. Technica, New York Times, MotherboardDevice.com, The Washington Post, etc. Nine point three point five is out today. 
It's a 40 megabyte update for most of you. It might be different depending on the Delta. And that fixes three zero-day vulnerabilities, including the Trident vulnerabilities that we just talked about. So everything we just talked about is fixed in 9.3.5, which indicates to you that Apple knew about this and they said, hey, don't, don't say anything. Just don't say anything for a little right. bit. Let us yeah, let us get this out. It's very typical to have embargoes on yeah. this stuff for a little while. Yeah, um, I we have we'll have more about iOS and security coming up a little bit in the show, um, including uh, some some things we got a, we got a few emails about this week. So if those of you are wondering if we're going to talk about it, and you emailed into the show. The answer is yes. The rest of you. Stay tuned to see what I'm talking about. But first, I want to mention Ting. Go to techsnap.ting.com to support this show and to get $25 off your first Ting device. Or if you bring one to Ting, you'll get $25 in service credits. Now, that's nice. That's really nice because my bill, if I was just probably one phone, probably about $20, $22 a month. I've got three phones, so it usually works out to be about $35, $38, $40. It kind of just depends on the usage that month. It's just really simple. Ting is mobile that makes sense. You only pay for what you use. They take your minutes, your messages, your megabytes, and they add them all up. Whatever buckets you fall into, that's what you pay. And the better part of that is they've even recently lowered their prices. So this is something that I think you're going to – in fact, they have they have an entire blog post. I would recommend you read the entire blog post. But this is something I think you're going to find makes Ting very competitive. It's $10 per gigabyte after your first gigabyte. It's very easy to understand. You combine that with the rest of Ting, where you only pay for what you use. If you use a lot of Wi-Fi, you don't use a lot of data, you don't pay for it. If you don't make a lot of phone calls, you don't pay for that. No contract and no early termination fee. Plus, they have CDMA and GSM networks to choose from. (laughs) It really is pretty incredible. Their customer service is nuts. You get to talk to a real human being. It's some sort of crazy concept. I never heard of it. Go over to their blog to read more about what I've been talking about, including their continuing series on cutting the cord. They're also doing a Galaxy S7 Edge giveaway, which is really sweet. Only, I think, one more day left on that, but uh, it's pretty simple. You subscribe to the YouTube channel, leave a comment, and, well, you can read the rest of their blog. But it is really simple to get one of those things. Go check them out. they got everything from feature phones to high-end luxury phones. The Motorola E second gen is on sale right now for only $57. No contract, no early termination fee, and you only pay for what you use. Damn. That's nuts. If you want to go get the 6P or the 5X and play around with Nougat directly, go get it from the Play Store and then just grab a Ting Sim for 9 bucks. They got the feature phone starting at $57, you know, uh, $68 for a slightly fancy one, all the way up to the latest iPhones and uh, Samsung Galaxy devices, plus everything in between. Check them out, won't you? TechSnap.Ting.com. No contract, no early termination fee. You only pay for what you use. CDMA and GSM network to choose from. Incredible customer service. I think you're going to be pretty impressed. Check them out, techsnap.ting.com. And a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. You can also try out their savings calculator right there. Just what would you save? Click that. And that's sort of like your Ting litmus test right there. If you pass that, you're probably a good Ting customer. If it says, yeah, you might not save, then that probably answers the question. Try them out, techsnap.ting.com. Mr. Jude, our next story comes from Mr. Schneier with Schneier on Security. What well, he have? just kind of pointed it out. It's okay. actually a Wired article, but oh. yes. Uh, so, yeah, it's an interesting bit of research. Uh, it's been brought to our attention by Bruce Schneider's blog here. Uh, in particular, you know, uh, while it's interesting, it also is a good way to explain the concept of uh, constant time security and, and what side channels are in cryptography. Oh, okay. So, uh, at uh, DEF CON, uh, last, a couple of Fridays ago, a hacker known as Plor. Uh, presented strategies for identifying a safe uh, custom-selected key code 
and then using it to unlock the safe normally without any damage or indication that the code has been compromised. So it's, you know, those electronic safes you see often like in hotels and stuff and people buy them for their house Mm -hmm. where you have to type in a code. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, he found a way to figure out what the code is just by guessing the code. Okay. Damn it. So Plur's techniques are interesting in that what they lack, there's no physical or algorithmic sabotage. It's just observing the the safe while you're trying to crack it. Uh, so Plur used what are called side channel attacks to pull it off. Uh, these are ways of exploiting physical indicators uh, from a cryptographic system to get around its protections. So that's not the only type of side channel there are, but basically... Uh, Side channels are other bits of information you get while trying to while interacting with an encryption system or decryption system, uh, and can sometimes use that information to lessen the security provided by it and eventually figure out what's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Plor was able to figure out the key codes for locks that were uh, designated by the independent third-party testing company Underwriters Laboratory as Type One High Security. So you know these safes were have been tested by. Uh, labs and actually shown to be fairly secure. Uh, these aren't the most robust locks on the market by any means, but they're known to be pretty secure. And these are the uh, safes with these locks are the kind of things you might have in your house. Uh, I think later on it even mentions it's uh, common on some gun safes as well. Uh, in practice, Plor was able to defeat security of two different uh, safe locks uh, made by um, a company called Sargent and one called Greenleaf, each of which used a six-digit code. He says, I chose Sargent and Greenleaf locks due to their popularity. Um, they are the lock manufacturers of choice for Liberty brand gun safes, among other things. And safes featuring these locks are widely available at major stores. Uh, Splor said he didn't uh, have time before DEFCON to try his attacks against other brands of locks. But he added, I would not be particularly surprised if techniques similar to these uh, would apply to other electronic safes yeah. and other electronic locks in general, like door locks or other devices that protect secrets like phones. Uh, which, after reading that, it made me very glad that my six-digit combination lock that protects the door to my house is mechanical and doesn't have the same kind of side channels. Hmm. Um, I mostly chose that, though, because I didn't... Uh, other ones often need a battery, and if the battery dies, then you can't use it to get in the house, and that would really annoy me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for our office, that's... You know, it made more sense than trying to give a bunch of different people keys to have a key code. Sure. Um, for the Sergeant and Greenleaf 6120 lock, uh, the lock which was originally developed in the 90s and still sold today, um, Plor noticed that when he entered an incorrect key code... He could deduce the correct key code simply by monitoring the current being consumed by the lock. Uh, So what you do here is place a resistor in series with the battery in the lock. And by monitoring the voltage across the resistor, we can learn how much current the lock is drawing at any particular time. Hmm. And from that, we learn something about the state of the lock. Uh, As the lock's memory checked uh, the input against the stored number sequence the current on the data line would fluctuate depending on whether the bits stored uh, each number in the code were a zero or a one. This essentially spelled out the correct uh, key code until Plora was, uh, had all the digits in sequence and could just enter the code and unlock the safe. Hmm. So as the lock is comparing the number you enter to the number in its memory, um, you know, the one or the zero are like a, a high and a low voltage and it was able to just what, by observing what's being going across the battery, was able to 
figure Jeez. out what the numbers are and then just take <laughs> them. That is, it's, it, I'm surprised that there's such a difference based on the result inside the one or the zero that it draws that much difference in the well, pattern. I, I imagine it's a, a, a very sensitive um, multimeter or something. Being sure. Uh, as long as there's a difference that you can detect, then that's the problem, right? Uh, for the second demonstration, he, ex- uh, he experimented with a newer lock, the uh, Sergeant and Greenleaf Titan Pivot Bolt. Uh, this model has a more secure electronics configuration, so Plur uh, couldn't simply monitor power consumption to discover the correct key code. Uh, he was able to use a different side channel approach, though, a timing attack to open the lock. Uh, Plur observed that as the system checked a user code against input uh, in the stored value, there was a 28 microsecond delay in uh, how long and when it used the current from the battery uh, if the digit was correct. Uh, the more correct digits, the more delay there was. Uh, this hmm, means that okay. Plur could effectively figure out the safe safe code or key code by monitoring the current over time while trying. 1 through 10 for each of the digits on the key code. Hmm. Right? So you just try 1. Okay, no delay. 2, 3. Oh, 4 took longer. Okay, so 4 is the right number. Move on to the next one. And that, you know, it wouldn't take very long to get through all the possible combinations because you don't have to try every possible one. Uh, you know, once you find that, you know, 3 is the first digit, then you don't have to test the other 7,000 combinations. Right. Um, and then he had to uh, come up with a way to um, defeat the penalty lockout feature though um, if you enter uh, the wrong combination too many times the safe locks itself out for 10 minutes yep. to, sure uh, they don't describe how he worked around that but he did find some way around the penalty lockout feature uh, and he says but ultimately he was able to get the whole attack down to just 15 minutes uh, <laughs> so in, in, at, in 15 minutes or less you can crack any of these safes uh, if you can monitor that difference, of course, the time difference is 28 microseconds, so, you know, don't blink. Um, but if, uh, theoretically, it should have taken 3.8 years to try every possible combination. But hmm. because the side channel might tell you when you were right versus when you were wrong, uh, that reduced the time it takes to crack this safe to 15 minutes. Uh, this is why in cryptography, you often hear about things being compared in constant time. Uh, where it's basically purposely slow everything down so that when you do the comparison, you're like, all right, it's going to take this long to do a comparison if it's right and this long to do a comparison if it's wrong or whatever. You basically make it everything take the longest possible time or usually pad it a bit. And this way, everything will always take the same amount of time whether it was right or wrong and the attacker doesn't get any additional information. The downside is obviously you're purposely making it slower. But, you know, maybe it's milliseconds, not, you know, hugely slower, but yeah. Uh, and that way the attackers don't learn anything from the amount of time it takes to get to find out if it was right or wrong, and so on. Uh, Plor goes on to say, burglars aren't going to bother with this. Uh, they're going to just use a crowbar or a hydraulic jack <laughs> from your garage, or if they're really fancy, a blowtorch. <laughs> uh, I think yeah. the more interesting thing here is that these attacks uh, have applicability to other systems. We see other systems that have these sort of lockout mechanisms. Uh, Plur said he's been uh, trying to contact the safe manufacturers since February. Uh, Wired tried to help and reached out to the companies for comment, but still hadn't heard back either. Of course, these companies, I don't imagine they make them very, right? It's like a small company. They pay somebody to manufacture a bunch, and they sell them, and it's like an office with like three people or something. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway. 
Uh, so even though no one would expect this type of affordable consumer-grade lock to be totally infallible, Plur's research is important because it highlights how effective side-channel attacks can be. They allow a bad actor to get in without leaving a trace. Uh, and this adds an extra layer of gravity because not only do these attacks compromise the contents of the safe, they could also go undetected for long periods of time. It also means that someone could put something in your safe uh, without you knowing, and then, you know, something search warrant or something, and the cops come in and they find, whoa, what's this in your safe? Hmm. Huh? Nobody else knows the combination to your safe, right? So it definitely means that you put that there. Could be. Now, our, yeah, yeah. I won't, I won't give away, but our next story might give you reason to believe why that could be something that could happen. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think this practical example, and, and just by looking at, you know, physical amount of time it takes and looking at batteries and so on, um, really is a good example of how side channels work, hmm. uh, where we normally just talk about them in software, where it's a lot more conceptual. Uh, and I, I just think that uh, I found this story interesting because it was actually showing in the physical world, you know, is that if you type in the wrong combination, it, you know, the more wrong digits you have, the longer it takes. It wouldn't take you very long to figure out, you know, in, yeah. if, if now the time scale in this case was small enough, you need tools to measure it. Uh, but, you know, I could imagine some safe that's, you know, worse. Yeah, and it is funny how um, oh, the chat, uh, in, a, in a go-go in the chat room is linking us to a YouTube video of this kind of thing. It's amazing how, how, how easy it is to actually conceptualize how you could actually do this, what, a, what kind of an obvious attack it is, and, but it's one that we don't really think about at all because we're so, we're so, we're so, we're so much into the concept, conception of how secure is a little computer in there? What, what is it? If, is it a passcode? How is it stored? How is it, all of that worked? And we don't even think about when the computer's processing it, does it have yeah, a different... does it actually use more power or does it take more time to check the right answer than the wrong answer? <laughs> right. You know, because <laughs> uh, that's a, a typical one for, you know, comparing password hashes, right? So we've talked about how hashes work and you have this big long string and you, well, if you start comparing them and the, it's like, oh, the, well, if the fifth character out of a 30 character password is wrong, uh, well, not the password, the hash even, um, if you just stop there and return, oh, that, that doesn't match, then the attacker knows that the password definitely doesn't start with that hash, right? And they keep going until they find one that takes longer and then they're further down the password and they can just keep doing this until they got the whole hash not brute force but just by using the side channel mm-hmm. hmm. and that's why you have uh, you know you have your regular string comparison function in c that compares one character at a time until it finds a difference and it stops then you have a constant time one where it would keep going but at the end give you the same result uh and by comparing all the way all the time it the attacker doesn't get to learn hmm. uh where in the string they were wrong right this is a pretty cool example. Yeah. That's what I thought. Oh, all right, Al. Any other thoughts on that one? Uh, no, that's the end of that one. Nice. And uh, links to the show notes if you'd like to read it. And uh, props to Mr. Schneier for sending it uh, out to everybody because I don't know if I would have – I don't know if we ever would have caught it. Yep. Uh, I want to give a special thank you to IX Systems for sponsoring this segment of the TechSnap program. That's Great sponsor because they are perfect for the type of audience of the TechSnap program. A good portion of you have to make big decisions from time to time when it comes to your hardware provider. Whatever your project is, it's a storage, if it's a compute, if it's a web server, if it's an application server, a terminal server, everything is 
always there's come to a point where you have to make that big decision. And I want you to consider iX Systems. Start by going to iXSystems.com slash TechSnap. You'll go through their pre-sales process, which I think you'll be surprised at how smooth that goes. And then I think you'll really respect the process over at iX Systems. Try them out. They've got these incredible systems built around these amazing Intel processors for all the different types of workloads you might have driven by open source software. Their blog has been blowing up with updates too, Alan. I was looking at, uh, look at this, iX System wins gold for product line of the year in Best in Biz Award for International 2016, which mm-hmm. is, they've also, on their post here, they've got uh, an update about their VMware support, which I think is, is a big item for a lot of people. They expanded the uh, capacity of their True Flash All Flash Array by 10, <laughs> by 10, <Yeah>. Alan. <laughs> yeah, 10 times as much storage. Yeah, I mean, the blog is just... It's just been recently just it's been loaded up with a bunch of really good stuff. So if you guys follow IX Systems all in the industry, it's worth checking it out. IXSystems.com slash TechSnap. That is where you go. I mm-hmm. I dream of the day when I build my next IX systems. Maybe like a free NAS XL. I don't know what it's gonna be, but I look forward to it. They, well, yes. Well the free NAS XL is really great. I think for your usage you want like a, a twelve drive uh like two U system. Yeah, uh, and then you can just add drives, you know, yeah. two at a time. I uh, were they at uh, Meet BSD Cam? Uh, BSD not, Cam, not, not Meet uh, BSD Cam. Yeah, because I know they're doing Meet BSD right in November. Right. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so yeah, that's other interesting thing. Uh, MeetBSD.com. Uh, their conference will be uh, November 11th and 12th, I yeah. think. Yeah. Uh, and there's a two-day dev summit before, but that's invite only. Um, but anyway, it'll be at the University of Berkeley, where you know the B and BSD comes from, uh, and uh, you should definitely come out to that. Uh, if you buy, if you register before September thirtieth, you get thirty dollars off the price, uh, which is good. Yeah. Um, but what makes MeetBSD uh, even better than a lot of uh, the BSD conferences, which are all great, uh, is it has a hybrid unconference style. So there's um, what we have uh, birds of a feather sessions, where it's like. Everybody that wants to just talk about ZFS for an hour, go in this room. And everybody wants to talk about Beehive for an hour, go in this room. And hopefully we don't do those two at the same time because <laughs> you want to be a part of them. Pick. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but we also, there's other things like uh, speed geeking, which is kind of like speed dating. But uh, so there'll be like 10 experts around the room uh, with a short, like a five minute or so talk about a subject, right? And you'll get broken up by lot into small groups of people and you'll go, between, you know, and every five minutes they blow the whistle or whatever and you move to the next station and you get all 10 lightning talks. But instead of in the typical lecture style, you receive it as a group of like, you know, five, 10 people or something like that, right? And so you can actually like ask questions interactively and, and it's more of a, a small conversation with the speaker rather than the regular lecture style. Uh, and it really lets you dig in and find out what you care about of the, that particular subject. Yeah. Yeah. I, but also, I, you get to learn what the people, the other people watching the talk with you are interested in. I think it's a really cool concept. So uh, all the details at meetbsd.com, and that just gives you an example of how invested IX is in the community because it's a super important part of yep. their overall strategy. ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Go there to learn more, get their white paper, and support the show. And a big thank you to IX for sponsoring the TechSnap program. And good luck with Meet BSD mm-hmm. coming up in November. Hopefully, you see a bunch of people there. Yeah. It's definitely very user system friendly as well. Mm, makes me want to go. Makes yep. me want to go. So, tell me about this Turkish journalist who looks like he may have been framed via malware and other things that were implanted yes. on his computer. Yes. Uh, so, a Turkish uh, journalist was jailed and charged with uh, terrorism and. Uh, 
computer forensics report shows that he was most likely framed. Uh-oh. Uh, so the Turkish uh, investigative reporter, uh, Baris Palavin, I, I, there's letters in there that aren't English. I don't know how to pronounce <laughs> it. Anyway. You're forgiven. Uh, he spent the last 19 months in jail accused of terrorism based on documents that were found on his work computer. Uh, but when digital forensic experts examined his computer, they discovered that those files were put there by someone who physically removed the hard drive from the case, copied the documents to the drive, and then reinstalled the hard drive. Uh, the attacker also attempted to control the journalist machine remotely and infected it with uh, malicious email attachments and, and via thumb drives. Mm. Uh, or sorry, so it seems like they tried spear phishing him via email and like leaving thumb drives on, on in the parking lot by his car and so on. And when all that didn't work, they broke into his office and physically inserted it onto his hard drive. Yeah, uh, that's bad. Yeah, among the viruses detected on its computer was an extremely rare trojan called Adipot, uh, and this is one of the only times it's ever been seen in the wild. So you know, it's you know, some companies like we only break this out when we really want to because we don't want people to discover it and have defenses against it. Uh, So, you know, this was a very expensive bit of malware, I'm sure. Uh, The attackers seemed to pull everything out of their bag of tricks. Uh, uh, Mark Spencer is a digital forensics expert that was doing some of the looking into it. Uh, They say the uh, journalist uh, went to jail in February of 2011 along with six of his colleagues after electronic evidence seized uh, by police during a raid in 2011 appeared to connect all of them to a group accused of terrorism in Turkey. Uh, it is not clear who actually perpetrated the attack, but the sophistication of the malware used and the uh, tightly targeted way that the Adipot malware works and the timing of uh, the arrest suggests the highly coordinated, well-funded attack. Uh, a paper recently published by computer experts uh, shed light into the case after several other reports have acknowledged the presence of malware. Uh, Mark Spencer, again, from Digital Forensics, uh, said no other forensic experts noticed the Trojan, nor has uh, determined accurately how those documents showed up on the re- journalist's computer. However, almost all of the reports have concluded that the incriminating files were planted there. Uh, what baffled Spencer the most during his investigation was the unusual malware, uh, one he has never seen before. Uh, it was installed on his computer uh, on the evening of February 11th of 2011, hmm. which is a Friday, the police raid took place the following Monday morning. Hmm. Coincidence? <laughs> yeah, I think not. Uh, <laughs> uh, Spencer worked with uh, a principal researcher from Sophos who's been analyzing the computer viruses for uh, a long time. Uh, they worked together to figure out what had actually happened. Uh, the malware appeared to be an unfinished beta development version of a remote access Trojan. Um, there's also clues to suggest the malware is Turkish in origin because it includes Turkish words in the source code. Uh, yet security experts are almost always uncomfortable talking about attribution because, you know, I could put Turkish words in my malware if I wanted it to make it look like it was the Turkish that did it, right? But it doesn't mean it wasn't the Turkish that did it. It's hard to say. Uh, Sophos researchers believe this remote access Trojan uh, was rushed into use uh, out of mm. desperation after several attacks failed to deliver expected results. Like the thumb drives uh, or the emails. Yeah. Uh, looking at the code revealed some mistakes that are typical of the very beginning of the development process uh, of the malware. Uh, prior to bringing in the Trojan, the attackers relied on more common malware. First, they tried to infect the computer with the Turcogen rat through a thumb drive <laughs> and then email attachments. I like the name. <laughs> yep. 
Uh, Spencer said the attackers copied both malware and encrypting documents to uh, his hard drive the night of February 9th and 11th to cover their bases in case they weren't able to control the computer remotely using the malware. They were smart enough to forge the dates associated with these documents. Spencer said the key to his investigation was constructing the true timeline of events. He suspects the journalist BC was attacked locally during these two evenings, uh, February 9th and 11th, because previously uh, attempts to remotely infect the machine had failed. Yeah. Uh, there were about a dozen different malware samples found. Analyzing them in Jeez. detail revealed that they were not uh, independent incidents. Hmm. Uh, he would find, uh, or he could find connection between them, and so it all showed up at the same time. Uh, he believes this was an expensive targeted attack, which used malware samples and commands and control servers dedicated to this particular case alone. So they were specifically targeting this one group. Uh, most InfoSec professionals refrain from saying who the attacker is, as attribution is usually difficult to establish in the cyber world. But he says, we think it was developed by a Turkish-speaking person or persons, uh, and that the internal text found in the malware samples were all in Turkish uh, language. Uh, meanwhile, in Turkey, um, the reporter is getting ready for his next hearing, scheduled for September 21st. He believes the trial could end this year, and he hopes to be acquitted with this new evidence. Wow. So it sounds like, I mean, if you were going to guess, it sounds like he was framed potentially by the government. Just to put him in jail and then... And Turkey doesn't have a good record when it comes to journalists anyways. So if anybody else was watching uh, House of Cards, you know... I watched it, This is exactly what happened to that guy, right? Yeah, it's true. (laughs) Except for, well, they tricked him into falling into his own sting. Yeah. So it was kind of more his fault than this guy's fault, but... (sighs) Uh, yeah, it seems a little fishy. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, and then, you know, another story we didn't cover this week and hopefully maybe next week is, uh, you know, somebody has been hacking into us journalists, although probably not to do the same thing necessarily. And it, uh, appears to have been a different government, but you know, it says uh, too that dozens of different uh, researchers have looked at it independently and said, yeah, this looks totally bogus. The fact that there appears to be evidence they removed the, yeah, none of them spend as much time as uh, yes. I did to actually figure yeah. out what's going on. Uh, it's just strange that uh, they would go to such lengths and that the avenue they now choose to frame these people is the computer system, not, you know, some photo with another woman or something like in compromising like that, but compromising the computer system. Welcome to 2016, Alan. And you got to wonder, too, like, uh, who else would really have the time or commitment to monitor what they do, try these different approaches, break into his residence, remove the hard drive, copy... It's work at the newspaper. Okay, yeah, okay, work. Copy over the data, alter the timestamps to make it look legit. If you, you know, if you read the article, too, they talk about how it does appear time, time and dates of the files were intentionally altered, but, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's, it's really something. All right, Alan. Well, uh, before we move any further into the show... Uh, I want to tell you about our friends over at DigitalOcean, sponsors of the TechSnap program. Use our special promo code over at DigitalOcean to get yourself a $10 credit and support the show. Promo code is SNAPOcean. SNAPOcean, one word, lowercase, at DigitalOcean.com. You can spin up a server in less than 55 seconds. And pricing plans start at $5 a month. They also break it down hourly if you want to take a look at their hourly pricing, which is sort of my preferred way to go, especially when I'm experimenting or trying something out. You can get a system with 2 gigabytes of RAM, a two-core CPU, 40 gigabytes SSD, because they're all SSDs, and three, bytes, or three terabytes <laughs> of transfer for three cents an hour. 
Three cents. So imagine a promo code that gets you a $10 credit, how long that'll last you. DigitalOcean has a great interface, a really straightforward API, lots of community code written around that API, team account accounts so you can work together with people. You can transfer droplets. You can deploy in seconds to the bare OS. Which were really important for us when we started using a scale engine because, you know, I need to have other people have access to the machines, but, you know, not my credit card. And so right. I don't want to share my password. It's been well. great, too, because sometimes people want to spin systems up for us at JB in the community, and it's a great way to work together. Private networking is really nice, too. It's a great feature. Uh, and their new block oh, yeah, storage. You don't pay for the bandwidth that way. No, on the private networking, you don't, and that's really nice. And the block storage is really cool, too, up to, up to uh, I think it's 16 terabytes you can attach. Yeah, and it's all SSD, all SSD. You combine that with their amazing control panel, the fact they got FreeBSD and ZFS up there now. It is a great system. DigitalOcean.com. They get data centers in San Francisco, Toronto, New York, London, Germany, Amsterdam, India, Singapore. Did I say Toronto? Because I should. Yep. Toronto. DigitalOcean.com. Just use our promo code, SNAPOcean. And a big thanks to DigitalOcean for supporting the TechSnap program. I was recently just uh, spinning up a DigitalOcean droplet to try out another web application. This is my go-to way now. When I got a web app and I don't want to install whatever the dependencies are, like on my, on my laptop. Well, see, we use containers for that on FreeBSD. Yeah, I know. I, I, could, years, I yeah. could do that, too. I just, really, it just takes a few seconds to start the droplet and try it and then turn it off. So I just, and you know, some projects even have to pull on DigitalOcean droplet buttons. That's nuts. Yep. Uh, so, hey, you know, before we go any further, let's, uh, let's stop for a moment and gaze at the new BSD now. Episode 156, the fresh BSD experience. Hmm, the fresh BSD experience. I'm going to try to guess what yes. that's about. Is that about uh, reloading your system? No, this is uh, an interview with a person who's first time using FreeBSD. Uh, they oh. got hired by the FreeBSD Foundation as their summer intern, and their job was to learn about FreeBSD and write a bunch of uh, beginner tutorials for it. Uh, and so it provided the unique perspective of someone who has never used anything but Windows and Mac before getting sat down in front of FreeBSD. And it's like, well, write a tutorial on how to actually install FreeBSD in a VM Neat. on your Windows or Mac. Or... You know, here's a Raspberry Pi. Put FreeBSD on it and write a tutorial about it. Also, you guys talk about OpenBSD on the Raspberry Pi. FreeBSD with ZFS on DigitalOcean. Uh, and OpenBSD and FreeBSD working with LibreBoot. All other topics also in the B- – many other topics in the BSD Now program. Sounds like a pretty packed show. Yep. All right. And there you go. next week's is good too. Yeah. In fact, there's a rumor – there's a rumor that it might be right up my alley, so I will be tuning into 157. But in the meantime, you can go get 156 in full HD glory, so that way you get all Jude all the time. This is about the halfway mark of the TechSnap program, so it's a good time to start downloading 156. And with the news all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or popping that contact link at the top of the JB website, like Val here did. And uh, Val wrote in about slow transfers between VMs. This sounds like a sticky problem because essentially using NFS between these different VMs running inside different hypervisors. Uh, uh, Val writes, longtime listener and fellow sysadmin network admin here needing some help with an issue. This has been driving me nuts. Val, I feel your pain. Uh, I have a home network setup with the following servers. A Dell server running ESXi 6. Uh, he says got good specs, or she says got good specs with a Xeon processor, 16 gigs of RAM, one terabyte hard drive. Then an IX system, FreeNAS Mini 4 base server with the Intel Atom CPU running at 2.4 gigahertz, 16 gigs of RAM. Again, 
uh, with uh, four two terabyte Western digital drives in Red Z1 configuration. And then the, then the Dell desktop running Ubuntu server 16.04 connected to it, running exclusively as Myth TV backend. Wow, cool setup, Val. Servers 1 and 2, each connected to a Cisco Catalyst 3560C 10-port gigabit switch, each in a two-port static port channel, meaning each server has two gigabit links to the network. Server 3 is also connected to the switch with a single gigabit link. I run Plex and Sonar on separate VMs on the hypervisor, and both are running free BSD. 10.3 release, with all current updates applied. The FreeNAS stores all video and music files on its own dedicated ZFS data set. Both Plex and Sonar VMs are connected to FreeNAS. Uh, our Plex clients, while Sonar download media locally and then transfer the files downloaded to NFS shares when it's completed, for the most part, it works pretty good. However, and I know you were wondering, here it comes, there is an issue I noticed that NFS transfer speeds between all FreeBSD and Linux VMs on the hypervisor and FreeNAS are not as fast as I expect them to be. For example, if I SSH to either the Sonar or Plex VM and perform an rsync to copy a 3GB MKV file to the VM's local storage, I'll generally see file transfers between 15 and 20 megabits. The same results occur if I run rsync from Linux VMs as well, so it's not exclusive to FreeBSD VMs. If I perform rsync on the physical MythTV server with tests running the same MKV file via NFS, I'll get transfer speeds closer to 75 or even 100 megabits using the full gigabit link. Try different network card drivers, all that kind of stuff. Try to Windows Server, and guess what? Windows 2008 R2 didn't exhibit these problems. What would you recommend I try next? All right, right. So he used iPerf, or they used iPerf and verified that the bandwidth is available. The network can handle it. Uh, They tried a Windows and connected over um, Samba instead, and they did get the performance there. Um, So it's probably likely related to VMs and VM networking and so on. Um, what I would suggest is try changing the mount options uh, for your NFS mount to probably use TCP instead of UDP and uh, increase the R size and W size, which is the size of a block that transfers at once, especially since you're mostly dealing with large video files, doing like 64K blocks or or something big like that, uh, especially since it's in a VM, will probably make a big difference. Okay. You know, if you read the man page for mount underscore NFS, it even says, uh, note that both the R size and W size options should only be used as a last ditch effort to improve performance when mounting servers that do not, support, you know, but um, yeah. You might uh, hmm. try using TCP instead of UDP and uh, see if that makes a difference. And if not, try maybe looking at tweaking the R size and W size and so on. I could I could absolutely accept VM overhead, but a difference of nearly saturating gigabit and 15 well, like, megs a second? Right. So even from inside the VM, iPerf can do it. But it's because you're using uh, NFS uh, and if you're by default doing over TCP, uh, UDP. I follow. It's, okay. It's, it's changing the number of packets and so on. Yes. Okay. I uh, follow you. So try using uh, NFS over TCP uh, instead of UDP. Um, plus, if you're getting it from uh, FreeNAS with ZFS, there's quite a few uh, interesting advantages of using NFS v4 instead of v3, uh, which is the default. So you might consider that as well. Um, but yeah, I've tried toggling some of those. Uh, NFS mount options like using TCP, UDP, and trying NFS v4. Um, default out-of-the-box FreeBSD over the 
hardware lane, I get no problem with NFS, but uh, in a VM, you get all kinds of different things. Um, you can get the best speed in a VM if you can actually use the uh, Vertio net, uh, net thing, but I don't think ESXi supports that. I don't know. Um, mm. Okay. Yeah. Um, also, when you're doing your test, instead of RSYNCing to the local disk, which can obviously be slowed down by the local disk, try using something like DD, uh, read the file, and write it to like dev null. Uh, although, make sure you set the block size to one megabyte, which is BS equals one capital M. Uh, on BSD, small M is fine, but on Linux, they need a big M because whatever. Or did anyway in older versions of core utils. Anyway, uh, if you read from NFS right to dev null, it'll take um, the local hard drive's performance out of the equation. Because especially in this case, your local hard drive in the VM is virtualized and is living on only what sounded like a... Uh, Red one pair of one terabyte drives, which is not going to be the same performance. Oh, that's that's a great suggestion. Those are not ZFS. That's a great suggestion. Uh, yeah. So yeah, uh, but hopefully, I think it would just be some NFS options. If you read uh, the man page for mount underscore NFS, it has a bunch of the different options. But I think TCP might be the one that'll solve it for. And you. I bet if you do some googling around that that particular combination and NFS performance optimizations, you'll probably see a ton of results because this is a really so common we- setup. Yeah, when I first heard the question, I assumed your problem was writing to NFS being slow. And uh, and I also assumed that your VMs were actually backed where the, the VM disk actually lived on the free NAS. Uh, so that changed the answer quite a bit. Uh, if writing to NFS is slow, try um, – don't leave it this way. But if you try setting the sync property in ZFS to disabled and all of a sudden all your problems go away – then uh, you should look at getting a Zill, probably. Ah, okay. All right. Thank you, sir. Lance writes in, and boy, have I been where Lance is at. Chris and Alan, I love the show, and all the others, too. Gets me through my three-hour commute a day. Oh, boy. Well, Lance, good news. We just launched User Air, so add that. One more new show to your uh, to help you out every day. Three hours a day. I, I commute uh, two hours a day, and... Um, I'm constantly adding new podcasts. So, yeah, I understand. Yeah. I used to burn through my audiobooks like crazy when I had to commute that long. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he says, I'm a web developer by trade and use Arch for my development home computer, so not afraid of the terminal. So throw it at me. My problem is my work blocks everything from images and Facebook to resources such as Reddit and YouTube, and I'm unable to install anything either. I was wondering if there was any solutions you know of to do something along the lines of a tunnel in the browser, perhaps through my website domain, on DigitalOcean or something else. I looked into guacamole, uh, but it looks convoluted, and my first two attempts failed miserably. Looking forward to insights on this doozy. Insights on this doozy. Thanks. And yes, FYI, I am looking for a new workplace. Thanks, mm-hmm. Lance. So he's got a big particular problem because my first thought, my background with this is I worked at a school district on and off for quite a while and they blocked everything I needed you know for doing any kind of troubleshooting it was so frustrating and I set up a Linux server and I used X2Go equivalent X2Go it was not that at the time to remote in and I just had a complete remote session and I was even able to watch YouTube videos in this remote session and I, I put all the traffic over 443 so it just looked like HTTPS traffic to the web yeah, firewall what I was thinking is uh, get a digital ocean and set up like OpenVPN on port 80 but his problem Lance can't install any software he has to use something mm-hmm. so he was like so Guacamole is a remote desktop 
uh, Syst solution that uses an HTML5 client. And that's a, right, right, right. I think that's why I was looking at guacamole. Yes. And so that is because I know there's like WebVNC. Like DigitalOcean has a HTML5 console. For the console, yeah. And I think it's an open source project that they're using to do that. If not, there is a similar one. Um, the and performance, though, would something. be bad, yeah. I would think, for a, for a GUI. I mean, for text. Yeah. But for a GUI, it's, I don't know. I've never tried the console over a GUI before. Um, but if you could, if there was a way to get a, a client installed or a WebEx to go client, something like that, that would be the, that would be the secret sauce. Well, I guess the other option is if you have an SSH client, which I'm guessing you might actually already have on the machine as, you know, be allowed to use, uh, and then setting up SSH on port 443 on a digital ocean droplet and mm-hmm. doing uh, SSH port forwarding that way. Mm-hmm. You know, what I would say too is, be careful here because you could get in trouble for doing something like yeah, this. So in the U.S., they've changed the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act to say doing anything against your employer's rules can be considered hacking. I would and also say it might be worth taking the route of advocating your use right. for this. I, be- I need to be able to read, read Stack Overflow in order to do Stack- my job. Reddit, you know what, obviously could be the biggest time suck of anybody's workday, but at the same time, legitimately there have been issues that I have troubleshot on my personal computer before where I have found the solution in a Reddit thread. And don't be afraid to argue politely and advocate, I would say. Don't say argue. I'd say advocate why you need these tools. And it's not technologically impossible to enable them for individuals. You might just have to start something here. Um, Or, you know, get a new job. That would work too. But Lance, otherwise, play with those ideas Guacamole, in my estimation, is a total pain in the ass to set up. I'm going to just say it. You might be able to find a container with it already configured. Putting that out there. All right. Tim writes in with, uh, with an interesting question. He says, hey, guys, I've been really enjoying your shows, especially enjoying hearing your solutions to viewers' problems and projects. I've been running a server with SambaShare in my house for a long time for storing all of my files, you know, his things. I like having access to the files through normal SMB access and whatever file explorer I'm using. Yeah, I agree. He has a mix of Windows and GNU slash Linux boxes. He says, I would love, however, now this is the key here, I would, however, love to also be able to browse my files with a front end like OwnCloud or NextCloud to give remote access to my files that would enable me to use a sync app from my phone to keep photos and videos backed up. But here's the catch. My understanding is that because OwnCloud operates from a database, if the files are modified outside its interface, it can cause issues. This is correct, Tim. He says, it is possible to achieve what I am, is it possible to achieve what I'm looking for? Is there a simpler solution that I am missing? Thanks again for sharing your wisdom and insight. I've learned so much for watching TechSnap Blast and other shows. So, Alan, I, like a web front end to expose directories on a machine. So, if you just want read-only access to be able to download random files and don't need, you know, sync, then obviously you can configure Nginx or any web server to allow directory browsing and then just put a username and password on it. Um, Sync app is more complicated. It sounds like what you really want is something like Nextcloud set up in some subdirectory to allow your phone to push stuff to it, and I doubt you would edit the photos from your phone on your computer, right? Yeah, Uh, that's true. And so Hmm. have both, basically, the ability to browse through any file and download it if you want uh, via HTTPS, because you can get a Let's Encrypt certificate, so it's all, all encrypted and good. Um, and then 
have also a subdirectory that's you know set up with your Nextcloud or SyncThing or whatever you like to use on your phone. The nice thing about using Nextcloud would be it takes it it takes care of that sending the photos and whatnot from his phone back up. I would also, if I were a betting man, bet that there is a way to trigger Nextcloud to re-index the file system and update the database. That might be worth looking into. Otherwise, what I would kind of suggest you think about is both OwnCloud and Nextcloud have a facility for external storage. So you could have um, LibreVault or SyncThing or BitTorrent Sync or Dropbox or C-File or et cetera, et cetera, set up on your phone and on your server. And then you could have OwnCloud or Nextcloud connect to that as external storage. And I could be wrong, so double-check me on this, but I think it treats external storage a little bit different in terms of the state of files or whatnot. And that... And, and and Samba and NFS, I think, are also options for external storage, at least Samba. Yeah, that so, uh, you know, depending on your device, you can VPN in and, uh, yeah. and have access to Well, and Nextcloud would but... give you an HTTPS if you set up, like you said, the Let's Encrypt would give you an mm-hmm. HTTPS front end. All right, so I'm not sure how we pronounce our next submitter's name, Norlif. I'm going to kind of take a guess, sure. a stab at. Uh, he has concerns around Windows 10. I own several computers running Windows. I've already upgraded them to Windows 10, but I'm concerned about privacy issues associated with it. I'm currently using SpyBot anti-beacon tool to block it on each computer, but the latest version is from October 19th, 2015, and I suspect Microsoft will circumvent this tool soon if they haven't done so already. As I am planning to replace my ISP's firewall and router with something of my own... I was wondering if PFSense or maybe vanilla FreeBSD router could be configured to catch all outgoing traffic from a dedicated Windows 10 computer and add all remote IP addresses it tried to connect to to a global blacklist so none of the other computers on my LAN can reach those IP addresses. I know a dedicated Windows computer will not be able to use the Internet in any meaningful way, but that isn't a problem as I use a local WS server to get Windows updates and DNS should still work as long as the computer uses local DNS, uh, which I could specify in the settings. Hmm. So he wants one like victim test, like a like a, basically computer. a honeypot. Yeah, thing. to see what it well, connects to. It can be to. a VM, right? It, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then just block everything it tries to. I don't know to. about an automated method, but legitimately, you could just log it for a couple of days and then yeah. look what it connects to, and then go add firewall rules to that. But you you should be able to do something like that. Um, I think you might have to use something like Circata or one of the other. Hmm. It's which is an available extension to PFSense. But yeah. You could create a dynamic rule. Anything that this machine connects to, add to this table, and then use that table as a block list. Tim, or no, listen to this is Norlif. Uh, brother, you, if you are this worried about Microsoft, you probably should just get off the Windows sauce, man. This is, this, you're going that to some lengths. But uh, <laughs> that is an interesting idea. And, yeah, uh, I do like cool it. cool to see. But um, I would say, if nothing else, you absolutely could log it, but... Uh, the thing you is, log, uh, block and log everything that that computer does. I would like or, it if, interestingly, you would actually want to allow that one computer to do everything because it might try to, oh, connect to Microsoft. And then from there, it gets the list of other places to connect to or something. So you'd actually want to allow everything that this victim well, computer does and, and then log everything and block it on every other machine, but not that one. I would suspect this has to be an ongoing thing because yes, you'd leave it running all the time after a service pack or a major update comes along. It may try to you know, the Windows box could be trying to connect to an entirely new set of domains or IP addresses. But yeah, so you have to keep going back. You have to allow that one to talk to everything because, you know, the second connection might depend on the first one succeeding. So, yeah, that's even more interesting now. It sounds like a fun problem, uh, although, you know, I'm, 
I'm just I'd be more glad to not have that problem. I also would like to know: uh, Does something stop working? Do things not work right? Like, can you no longer use the Windows Store? And is there something that that matters? Is there you know? There's like would there be functionality of Windows that just kind of quits working? Obviously, things like Bing Search built in Cortana wouldn't work, but that's probably not a big deal. But it's it's fascinating to start thinking about what would possibly break and what could possibly change and how you'd have to keep coming back to it. But uh, I think his his approach of doing it at the network level is a clever one because I agree, SpyBot anti-beacon is not the way to be doing this. So the network level approach is a clever one, if nothing else. I would love like a year update or, I don't know, six-month update or something to let us know how it goes. It would be really fascinating to see what, what you are able to come up with. And if anybody else has thought about this or even implemented something Please do let us know. Go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact and choose TechSnap from the drop down. Or you can also submit it to the uh, – just do like a – what do they call it? A self-post on the subreddit? A self-post? Just do a self-post and uh, tell us about it at the uh, techsnap.reddit.com subreddit. And uh, it will probably catch our attention. That is all the feedback for this week. We still have a few more emails in our inbox, but we need more. So please send them into the show so we can answer them next week, whatever they might be. If you – you know, we kind of – we often answer a lot of storage questions and networking questions because they're on the tip of all of our minds. And I love answering those, so keep sending them in. And if you have anything else, something you haven't heard us answer for a while or something kind of out there, why not send it in? If nothing else, I will try to fire back like a quick acknowledgement that we got it or thanks, you know, thanks or something. Uh, just so you know, you made it here. TechSnap at JupiterBroadcasting.com if you want to send it directly. That is all of the feedback for this week. And now it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the Tech Snap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the Roundup are stories that didn't quite fit at the top of the show, but we still want to talk about them and give you some links to read up on on your own after the show. And some of these links came from our super secret intelligence network at techsnap.reddit.com, where you could supply links to the uh, to the Roundup as well. And uh, also your comments are also appreciated, kind of factor into the Roundup discussion. Our first one is definitely one of those. I, I don't know about the subreddit, but I, I, we got a couple of emails into the show about this. We got a few tweets into the show about this as well. And after that kind of response, from, you know, when I see a bunch of the audience members who I've heard from before and some are new and I respect their opinion, I'm like, okay, this is something I'm definitely going to check out. And I'm glad I did. It's a video that came out of Black Hat, and it's a behind-the-scenes of iOS security talk given by one of the uh, critical role members at Apple with iOS security, but also is the talk where Apple actually announced their uh, bug bounty program. And um, I really have got to say, I really respect Apple's process for trying their best to make iOS as damn secure as possible. I mean, everybody Mm -hmm. has mistakes, just like we talked about at the top of the show today. But holy crap, after watching this video, I was I walked away extremely impressed. There's a QA and a at the end that's like a little awkward because dude can't answer like 95 percent of the questions. He's able to answer a few things. But this is the problem we've had even interviewing people on BSD now that work at that type of place is like all the answers had to be pre-approved. And so if you ask them something they didn't think people were going to ask, they don't have an answer that they're allowed to give. That's why I was shocked that he shared as much. They, they, even in this video, which you might find interesting audience at home is they talk about how Apple manages the fact that they do have master encryption keys, what they did to what they did with those, which is pretty shocking and uh, what they did to protect them and all of it. Um, 
they talk about the the secure enclave on the iPhone, the fact that it is its mm-hmm. own operating system with its its own entire ARM system on a chip in that secure enclave. They talk about the messaging between the operating system and that. It's fascinating, and you can find the link in the show notes. Kind of goes earlier with our coverage today. So everybody's favorite, uh, GNU PG and LibCrypt have some updates. Tell me about that. Yes. Uh, researchers have found a bug in LibGCrypt's uh, random number generator that has existed since 1998. Oh. Uh, and it means that if you get uh, 46, 60 bytes of the entropy from his random number generator, you can then predict what the next 160 bytes are going to be. Wow. Yeah. Well, shoot, Alan, That's as they say. Okay. Shoot, as they say. So we've talked a lot about the FBI and James Comey's um, public statements about finding the balance with encryption. This Mm -hmm. has me concerned. Encryption is apparently under fire in Europe as France and Germany call for decryption laws. Um, During a joint press conference in Paris yesterday, Germans Thomas de Maslier, I'm not quite, I have no idea how you say that, and France's interior minister called for European Commission to change the law to afford security agencies the ability to access encrypted data. The context here is that France and Germany have been uh, under terrorist attacks recently. Um, However, the unfilter host in me would have to point out the irony that uh, Paris has been in a uh, state of emergency since before those uh, Paris attacks. They had, they've been able to do warrantless surveillance and scoop up hundreds and hundreds of people without any reason, and that didn't stop the attacks. And now they want a European Commission law to, uh, ch- to afford, as they put it, security agencies the ability to decrypt traffic. I don't like that because the precedent that could set there could be bad for us here in the States and Canada, don't you think? Yep. It's all terrible. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, France has been doing a bunch of stupid things. Uh, I, I expected more of Germany, though. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, all right. So moving on. Using PGP phones doesn't make you a criminal. What? What's yes. a PGP so, phone? Uh, a phone that can do PGP encrypted oh, okay. messages. Right? <laughs> um, so in this particular case, it's actually a, a local case here. Uh, but police arrested a guy uh, and uh, tried charged him with a bunch of things. Uh, and then when I went to court... Uh, you know, the, it turns out the police's justification to get the warrant to search his house and find the stuff that they tried to use to, to put him in jail uh, was that he exchanged encrypted messages with another guy. And, and the judge is like, um, that's not illegal. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> and so on. I think the, the conclusion at the end here is pretty good. It's um, There's nothing illegal about communicating using GPG. The fact that suspect A seems to have communicated with suspect B by way of encrypted messages, combined with the fact that both of them appear to have uh, been security conscious about their conversations, may mean that they are involved in something illegal together. But it may not. Exactly. Um, the judge called this an impossible leap on the part of the officers and excluded all of the evidence Good. obtained by the search warrant and uh, threw the case out, basically. Huh. Another reason to move to Canada, right there. Uh, I'm just... I'm not sure if I'm going to be uh, a PlayStation owner again anytime soon. Maybe there's Alan. Uh, if there's any, so if there's anything, I didn't cover this story in here, but apparently PlayStation is bringing all their PlayStation Three games via their remote play system. Their, what? You, know, remember that, you remember? Yeah. Uh, somebody was going to do Netflix for games for Xbox. Yeah. PlayStation doing it themselves now since they actually own the rights. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've heard of it. Uh, yeah. But they're going to allow you to play PlayStation 3 games on your computer now, your Windows desktop. Oh, well, I don't. 
Hmm. See, here's what's got me tempted about the technology it uses, so it might be possible to play under Linux as well. What has me? It's running on your computer. It's running on a virtualized place. Right. It's like OnLive was. Yeah. It's it's like that, but actually run by Sony, so not going to be shut down for illegally using <laughs> yeah. the games. Uh, what uh, what might get me to get a PlayStation Four eventually? And I, you know, it's going to be bad, but there's a Star Trek VR game coming out for the PS Four in in a little while, and that looks really cool. Well, plus, you know, it never hurts to have another FreeBSD computer in your house. Right? <laughs> that's right. So that's why I'm kind of jazzed to hear the PlayStation Network is finally adding two-factor authentication yeah that's uh that's a nice that's really all i have to say on this it's just nice to see them get coming to this um it is uh is uh, going to be hopefully beyond sms based but right now i don't know about that so there you go playstation network finally stepping up into the modern age a new collision attack is out against three des triple des blowfish which allows for cookie decryption for you porn browsers i mean uh tell me what's what's actually what's the concern here alan is maybe another website could tell what what website i've been visiting uh so so uh, the 3des one means that it's uh you might be able to uh decrypt the traffic uh and then the the Blowfish one is uh, the default used in OpenVPN, and because it's only a sixty-four bit block size uh, chunk on the cipher, it could be uh, problematic. I see. So um, uh, only about one percent of traffic still uses three des. It's really you know outdated, uh, but maybe eventually this will cause browsers to ditch it. But the Blowfish one Blowfish, in OpenVPN is kind of it's the default in OpenVPN, so it's yeah. kind of a big deal. So this is um, this is a specific. This is a, this is a. I, mm-hmm. I see the way the headline put it. I thought this was something that had to do with getting people's cookies, but this is actually a, an attack against the cipher. Right. Uh, and, well, Blowfish is used by default to encrypt cookies on some websites as well. Oh. Uh, so it might be possible <laughs> to figure out the cookie. I see. And then the last thing is, um, yeah, so OpenVPN is going to release a patch where it will give you a big fat warning if you don't change it away from Blowfish to something else, mm. uh, saying, hey, there's a known attack. Apparently it's called Sweet32 or something. Um, but if you want to know more about it, go read the story. It's uh, got good coverage of it. All right. How about this one? Are you ready for this? Uh, researchers have figured out how to detect your keystrokes with over 90% accuracy using Wi-Fi devices. Not malicious software, but by detecting the ripples in the freaking Wi-Fi signal. The ripples in the Wi-Fi signal. I just have a link to a PDF report on it. because like, it, Do they mean like off a phone where you're like shaking the phone while you're typing? Or do they mean... They, like, act, they, uh, they propose the Wi-Fi signal-based keystroke recognition systems called Wi-Fi key or Y-Key, uh, two commercial off-the-shelf Wi-Fi devices, a sender such as a router and a receiver such as a laptop, uh, continuously nice. emit signals, and it looks like anything in the vicinity of those signals. Yep, like your finger's literally making the signal weaker in one specific region yeah. on the antenna. Yeah. Um, Wow. Another story, which I didn't add in the roundup this week. Jesus. Uh, there's a, an article over at The Atlantic, all the ways your Wi-Fi router can be spying on you. Uh, <laughs> right. They built a version where you set it up on either side of the door, and you can actually tell who's coming through the door with some degree of accuracy. Holy smokes. So, so you record the people coming through the door, and you tell the machine, all right, that was so-and-so, and, and that was Chris, that was Rakai, that was Angela. Um, and then later, it has a like a 92% chance of... If you say, coming through the door next will be A or B, it will get it right out of one of two people 90-something percent of the time and one of six people 80-something percent of the time. Jeez, they used a TP-Link TLWR10, 43ND, and a Lenovo X200 for the test. 
Oh, an Intel 5300 Wi-Fi NIC. So this is just this is just your average off the part off the shelf parts. Yeah. They, I was I was surprised they didn't need a special antenna to do that. That's They talk a little bit about the antenna setup and positioning, okay. but yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's it's really interesting. How about this? A new air gap jumper co- uh, covertly transmits data using hard drive sounds. Disk filtration siphons data even when the computers are disconnected from the internet by listening to the disk's electrical sounds, right? Like the, yep. oh so my. It's actually listening to like the whirring and clicking and so on of uh, your mechanical hard drive. In other words, none of us are safe from anything. <laughs> you got Wi-Fi, so, you're screwed. You got a hard drive, you're screwed. It, it, it's... Uh, Relatively slow, but they could get the, you know, the, the 4096 bits that make up your PGP key or 512 bytes of data in about 25 minutes. All right. So not very fast, but if they, if they had malware on the AirGap computer to pick out the information they really wanted and then do it this way, they might be able to. Although, I don't know if this requires a hard drive be idle while they're trying to do it. Hmm. This has got some people upset. Speaking of being idle, I think people are going to get uh, upset when they f- figure out that WhatsApp is going to start sharing your phone number with Facebook. So even if you've never put your information into Facebook, because you've used that to sign up with WhatsApp, they've decided to merge the information. It's pretty significant, which is going to affect more than a billion people around the world. Now remember, Facebook bought WhatsApp for $21.8 billion two years ago. So we've been wondering when something like this is going to happen. And... It appears this is also going to help enable a new type of targeted advertising and tracking by Facebook. AP has the full story. Yikes. Yep. Not a WhatsApp user, but that sounds like it sucks. Next headline, 20% of scientific papers on Genesis contain conversion errors caused by Excel. Genes, not Genesis. Oh, Genesis, yeah. <laughs> See, so, yeah. The problem is my monitor's certain, over there. Yeah. When you type in certain gene names, uh, Microsoft likes to convert them into dates. Losing some of the information. Well, that's hilarious. And so, just and so by if that, you don't specifically set the cell data type to, uh, you know, plain text or whatever, then as you put the data in, Excel turns it into a date. And then <laughs> people attach these to papers and conferences. And uh, yeah. They say uh, gene name errors are a widespread issue in scientific literature. <laughs> The spirit, the spreadsheet software Microsoft Excel is to blame when, use the def- when using the default settings. That's that's a that that tickles me. That tickles me. Now this one uh, is frustrating for those of us who've been recommending uh, this webcam to a lot of our audience. So, Windows 10 has broken a very popular webcam. Yeah. So Microsoft, because they found it, that they have a new some new way of doing webcam stuff, and so they've made it so that you can only get streams from the webcam in the the raw format. Well, the whole point of these better Logitech webcams, which is funny because I'm looking at the picture of it and I'm looking at the one I have, um, is that it does the H.264 compression on a chip on the camera and then sends that to Skype. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the problem is that Microsoft's new thing will try to, you know, end up compressing the video twice. Uh, and so, like, oh, we'll just make sure we always pull raw from the camera. Except for that defeats the purpose. You know, these cameras can only do HD if they do the compression on the camera because the USB bandwidth isn't wide enough to send right. 1080p uncompressed video. Right. Um, and so if you had Skype on Windows 10 and it kicked into HD, it would freeze because Windows would stop accepting the data from the camera. This also reveals some of the issues we've had with Skype and webcams and Linux because I'm doubting that... 
I, I'm guessing that this kind of reveals uh, a bit of a bit of well, behind the scenes connection between Skype and the hardware. Well, in particular, uh, Skype only ever allowed the Logitechs to do the H.264 thing if you had at least like a core two quad or something like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess they probably just disabled that check altogether at Linux. Yeah. Ah, so uh, I would imagine. Oh yeah, here we go. Here's an update. There's a workaround that can uh, stop the freezing issue if you're comfortable tweaking the registry, and the link in the show notes has that. So there you go. There is a workaround in the meantime. Uh, this is an interesting image or series uh, of uh, images. How compression works. This sounds freaking fascinating with different uh, types of compression uh, examples. Yeah, it's like how uh, run length encoding works versus how, like how the compression in a GIF image yep, works. Yep. Cool. Kind of helps you visualize it in a really nice way. I don't know. Really, I don't know how to quite describe it for the audio audience, other than they'd have to check the link. But yep. those of us watching the video get to kind of see it. And here's one more kind of visual thing that I'll, I'll just kind of point you guys to to check on your own at the end of the show. Here, this is a pretty cool post by uh, Mongoose, or I'm sorry, no, it was Mac360SE uh, in the uh, TechSnap subreddit. Uh, Saving a rare Next computer. It's a series of images going through and finding an old Next. Uh, which probably some of you remember. Next was the company that Steve Jobs started after he left Apple while he was finding uh, kind of a new market. It was also when they bought Next, they incorporated the core technology into Mac OS X. It's what is sort of some of the user land stuff is based off of is Next. And these, a lot of the early websites and stuff on the Internet was created on Next boxes. So it kind of has a, a unique heritage. And they're pretty rare machines at this point. And uh, you can see, oh, wow, look at the screenshots of the old uh, Next Step desktop. Oh, man. Kind of reminds me of KDE a little bit, <laughs> doesn't it? <laughs> I see a little Lumia desktop in there. I see a little, uh, yeah, pretty cool. It's, it's 40 images of this old awesome piece of hardware, including up-close pictures. Look at that. That's super cool. Oh, man, look at that big SCSI connector. <laughs> yep, I have those on my 486. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he's got a couple SCSI connectors on that thing. Anyways, really cool submission uh, by uh, Max360SE. So we have that at the end of the roundup. But that brings us to the end of this week's TechSnap. 281 is in the bag, and as you heard Alan mention, we've already got things in the work for 282. So we encourage you to join us live next Thursday over at jblive.tv, which is live at 1 p.m. Pacific, which clocks in at... 4 p.m. Eastern, 2000 UTC. Pow! You can also go to jblive.fm if your bandwidth can't handle all our videos and you want to get the audio only. Of course, don't worry. We do release this on demand every single Thursday evening over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. We've got RSS feeds you can subscribe to to get the show automatically. We want your contact feedback, all kinds of questions over at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact and your content submissions at techsnap.reddit.com. Okay, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning this week's episode of TechSnap. And we'll see you right back here next week.